This is Uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Salam Fathayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee. Stories that stick with you. We are continuing to dive headfirst into a topic that's both universal and deeply personal, death. We all know that death is an unavoidable part of life, yet it remains one of our greatest mysteries. It's a topic that often fills us with fear, sadness, and uncertainty. But today, we're going to approach death from a different angle, centering today's dialogue and speaking to individuals who stand on the front lines of death. With their unique perspective and experience, we aim to understand how individuals who work closely with death, those who confront it daily, perceive this inevitable aspect of our existence. And the first place that I thought of was a hospital, and then immediately looked into someone that can shed some light on palliative care. My name's Dr. Lara India. I'm a palliative care doctor at Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin. Palliative care is a subspecialty of medicine that can be offered alongside various other treatments. And my specialty is in seeing patients that have all sorts of serious illnesses. Mm -hmm. And we spend a lot of time talking about symptoms that those illnesses might cause and coming up with ways that we can manage them. And we also talk about how to get the most out of the quality of life while living with serious illness. When speaking with Dr. India, within the first 10 minutes of our conversation, I fell into the trap of a common misconception. If we can just go back to your career when you first started, was, was there anything that surprised you with dealing with people that have seri- serious illnesses or are during their end of life? Yeah. So one point that I just want to clarify, right? Palliative care is much bigger than just end of life care. Um, It's a portion of what we do, but we can see people while they're still undergoing treatments to cure their Mm. disease or other treatments that are there to prolong their life. And a lot of what we do is, is walk alongside people while their disease is being managed. And then if it turns into a disease that won't be cured and we have to have different sort of conversations about that, then we're, we're already connected to the patient. We already have a relationship mm-hmm. with them. And that does go a long way if we do end up at an end of life situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that misconception is really common mm-hmm. that all I deal with is people who are at the very end of their life. And so I think that I get a lot of personal value from from walking the journey with my patients mm-hmm. as opposed to only meeting them at the very end when we're you know struggling to find additional interventions that we can offer. I made an erroneous assumption, but I'm not alone in holding that belief. According to the National Library of Medicine, a 2019 study sought to assess the understanding and perception of palliative care in the United States. The study found that nearly three quarters of those who were aware of palliative care linked it exclusively with end-of-life care. And less than 10% mentioned that it could be employed at any point in the illness, not just end-of-life. With this uh, podcast series, we are talking about end of life. And I would love your perspective on 
have you found the right way to approach that conversation? There's a lot of variety in the right mm-hmm. way to approach that conversation. I think that a lot of it depends on how unexpected it is. Mm-hmm. If I have a patient who has been getting treatment for their cancer for years and we've now reached the point where there's no more treatment options, that's a more expected outcome than when I have a conversation with a family whose loved one was in a serious accident. Right. And so appreciating the backstory really determines how I'm going to approach each conversation that mm-hmm. we have. So it's hard to find the the unifying themes um, from that standpoint. What is pervasive is it's incredibly emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I'm speaking with a person who has seen this coming for a while now or whether I'm speaking with a family who is really shocked to learn that this is the situation that they're now in. Another part of this conversation that I really wanted to really get into because I was in, I was curious about if I was someone in a position where um, I was treating folks that were dealing with serious illness or end of life or just being really close and intimate with someone that needs that help how would that impact my personal life I'm interested if there has been an evolution of your perspective so there are very, very hard cases that I can look back on and I can see the toll that it took on me personally mm. because of my relationship with the patient and their family as we you know, went along this journey together. I feel like I am very open with my family about the idea of death and planning for it, uh, including with my my young children, my mm. my six year old son is very aware of what death is, and that's part of what I do every day when I go to work. Uh, I think that part of being an effective palliative care doctor means also coming up with ways to leave that emotion you feel in yourself at work mm-hmm. and not bringing it home with you. And I think that has been my one of my biggest points of professional development over this uh, the course of my practice is developing ways to make sure that I'm not bringing any of this, well, not bringing a lot of this sadness home with me. During the research phase of this month, I found myself watching quite a few TED Talks. And one that stood out to me that kind of kept replaying in my mind over and over again to the point where I've shared it with my colleague and a few of my friends. It was this phenomenal talk given by a fellow palliative care physician, Dr. Catherine Mannix, titled, Why Don't We Talk About Dying? I want us to think about whether knowing more about dying might actually help us to live better. And I've got a reason for thinking that it might because over 30 years of working in palliative care, where a little bit of doctor gets spread a long way by working with lots of different other professions in the team, the teams that I've worked in between them have looked after somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people at the very end of their lives. So that means that when I'm talking to you about the process of dying, I'm not talking about how my relative died, how my friend died, what my neighbor told me about the way their friend died. I'm talking to you about the process of dying. 
So the first thing that I would like us to know is that it's not like on the movies. It's disappointingly not like on the movies because it's always very exciting on the movies. And she mentioned a little bit about how a lot of people, for, like from the outside perspective, when they watch media, there's a dramatic perspective of what death looks like at end of life, uh, like the movies where you're saying their last thoughts. And um, she found out that speaking about that and really kind of breaking it down what that looks like gives gives a lot of calming energy to folks that are going through that. I was wondering if you have been through that specific or a similar situation where you had to explain to a patient or even family members of what death looks like or end of life looks like. Have you? Oh yeah. I think that's a conversation I have fairly regularly. Um, I'm always sort of trying to check in with my patients and with their family about how much they want to know mm -hmm. about that process. And if it's information that they think would be helpful as they're going through it, I will talk through the expected changes as far as how awake they're going to be, the expected changes with their breathing, mm -hmm. like you were mentioning, um, and of course, the way that we are going to provide medications to ensure that they're comfortable throughout the process. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of fear around death, and I think that people worry deeply that their loved ones are suffering during the dying process. And I think that a huge part of my work is trying to alleviate that feeling of guilt for the family members. And so I do think that the information that I provide them, the education around right. what dying looks like, what we understand to be going on in the dying person's brain and what they are experiencing goes a long way to helping family members and loved ones find peace throughout the process. Do you mind explaining what dying looks like if you can? So a little bit will depend on the particular condition mm -hmm. that somebody has. Generally, somebody will go through a dying process that changes how awake they can be. Mm -hmm. And so the brain loses the higher cognitive functions first. And so you're not able to be awake and speak and interact. But the deeper brain functions, things that control your heart beating and your lungs breathing, and I believe things that control your ability to feel touch and to hear sounds, including familiar voices, mm -hmm. stay. And so I always encourage my families to continue to talk to their loved ones, continue to hold their hand. There's no reason to, uh, scientifically to think that we've lost that ability as we go mm -hmm. through a dying process. There's various changes that happen to breathing. Oftentimes we see people's breathing slow down and they may pause for 30 seconds or up to a minute before they take another gasping breath. Mm -hmm. We don't think the gasping sound is uncomfortable for them. It's just the body's way of recognizing it hasn't been breathing for a while. So it takes a larger breath to make up for it. There's other changes with the skin, feeling colder, blood flow slowing down to the feet and the legs. Mm -hmm. um, and you may see color changes in the skin as part of that as well. Um, and some of the last signs would be changes in the heart rate. The heart rate will eventually slow down significantly. 
and at some point the patient will take their last breath in and then there won't be another one. Before this conversation to me, palliative care seemed so scary because it meant giving up. And I haven't really considered the comfort that palliative care physicians can provide when providing comprehensive support to individuals who are facing a serious illness and those nearing the end of their lives. A sense of closure. But sometimes, death doesn't grant closure. After the break, we'll shift our focus to an investigative journalist who navigates mysteries surrounding death, unearthing uncomfortable truths, and relentlessly seeks answers when death fails to offer any semblance of closure. Do you want to know the secret behind the programming you love? It's all funded by the honor system. As a public radio station, we're based on a very simple model. We try to do something meaningful, connecting with you through music and stories. And then we count on those who appreciate what we do to show their support. Are you one of them? Show your support by visiting RadioMilwaukee.org and joining today. When I had Lele, I was a, I was a little girl. I was 16. I had her two weeks after my 16th birthday. She was so smart. She was so smart. I wanted her to go to school so bad because she was so, so smart. When I tell y'all, my baby loved school on every level. At four years old, Alexis was reading and writing. She was so smart. She knew her letters, everything. Alexis had never missed one day of school. So when my daughter never made it home, I ran into class. Miss Rulin was still in there. And I asked Miss Rulin. I looked at Miss Rulin. I said, Miss Rulin, where Alexis at? And I still remember her face. She turned around. She she turned around. She said, "Alexis didn't come to school. I ain't seen the like." And I said, "Oh my God! Like I never knew that my baby hadn't made it to school that day." You just heard a gripping snippet from USA Today's coverage of a mother, Ayana Patterson, speaking about her seven-year-old daughter, Alexis Patterson, and her mysterious disappearance on her way to school back in 2002. USA Today and Milwaukee Journal Sentinel holds a true crime podcast series, Unsolved, hosted by investigative journalist Gina Barton. In its fourth season, Unsolved delves deep into this very case. I sat down with Gina to discuss her line of work. What uh, made you want to pursue journalism and investigative journalism? I have always wanted to be a writer since I was five or six. I was always scribbling little stories in notebooks. And when I was about 11 or 12, one of my mom's best friends was over visiting and she said, you know, the best way to make money as a writer is to be a reporter. Mm. And one of the best journalism schools in America, Northwestern, was like 45 minutes from my house where I grew up outside Chicago. And she's like, so you could go to Northwestern, you could be a reporter. And then the next time I saw her, she brought me all the president's men, which is a cliche for Gen X reporters, but it really (laughs) did happen. 
And then I was like, wow, I can be a writer and bring down presidents? This is so cool. And so I'm one of the few people I know who has known where I wanted to go to college, what I wanted to study since I was in junior high, and I'm actually still doing that. That's amazing. I did not have that at (laughs) all. Um, I know right now you have a podcast with USA Today and Milwaukee Journal Sentinel titled Unsolved. And the fourth season is about Alexis Patterson, who is a seven-year-old that walked half a block from school in 2002 and has been missing ever since. Um, You mentioned one of the reasons why you wanted to focus on this case was because of racial disparities um, when it comes to reporting missing children. Why was that an interest to you? Alexis Patterson disappeared on a Friday, and I moved to Milwaukee and started working at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel on the following Monday. So her case has always stuck with me, and it's been something that I've followed my entire career here in Milwaukee. And then later on, more coverage started being given to missing kids and particularly missing white kids and missing white women, mm-hmm. a phenomenon that most people are familiar with, I think, and that Gwen Ifill coined as missing white woman mm-hmm. syndrome. And so when I was thinking about what to do for season four, Alexis's story was always one that I wanted to delve a little more deep into. And we had never gotten the records from the police on her case, wanted to do that, and then really became interested in why do we hear so much about missing white women, girls, beautiful blonde teenagers, Mm -hmm. but when young women and kids of color go missing, we don't hear nearly as much. So that sparked an entire year-long investigation on that topic. That And the capstone of that investigation was the podcast about Alexis. I heard uh, one of the first episodes, and I'm incredibly intrigued, so I'm looking forward to listening to more of it. Thank you. But when it comes to investigative journalism, as you know, it requires intense research and engagement with difficult, sensitive matters. How do you manage the emotional toll of that work? Back when I was in school in the 90s, Nobody talked about that topic. Mm -hmm. Reporters were supposed to be objective and kind of emotionless. Mm. And then as time went by, this new school of narrative writers said, no, the idea is to feel something and make your readers feel it too. And then after that, um, people started realizing that when the people you're writing about are feeling pain and depression and sadness and horrible trauma, that that can have an impact on journalists the same way that it can have an impact on other first responders, police, paramedics, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And so that's when journalists, including myself, started doing training about how can we cope with our own emotional reactions to Mm -hmm. the stories we cover. Probably one of the hardest times for me in that regard was, I have a 15-year-old son now, but when he was a baby, I was doing an investigation about deaths in foster care. Mm -hmm. And my job was to read every single medical examiner's report of every child who had died in Milwaukee County for the past five years. Oh, wow. (laughs) And it was awful. And, you know, so I would find myself two or three times during the night going up into his room and just making sure he was still alive. Mm -hmm. And... About that time is when I started seeing a therapist who I still see, and she's wonderful. 
her nickname is the world's best therapist. <laughs> and also a, a friend of mine is reading some very troubling domestic violence police reports now. And she had asked me, like, what advice do you have? Yeah. And one thing I say is to try and limit yourself to an hour or two a day of that sort of exposing yourself to that. Try not to do it at night so that you have time to wind down before you go to sleep and you're not up all night thinking horrible thoughts and remembering terrible things that have happened to people. But it is a fine line trying to keep yourself separate enough from your stories so that they don't impact you so negatively that you can't do your job. Mm -hmm. But also you have to be close enough to the subjects of your stories that you can empathetically listen to them and tell their stories in a way that provokes an emotional reaction in readers that makes them want to take action to help. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for that insight. You know, I think about that now. I feel like a lot of times with crime, there's a lot of podcasts and YouTube channels where, I don't know if you've seen those, where they're putting on makeup and they're discussing a case. How do you ensure when, you know, speaking to vulnerable sources to remain ethical, but also without exploiting their pain. So I think it's a huge problem when other people's pain becomes the source of an audience's enjoyment, mm. amusement, fun. <laughs> but at the same time, as a journalist, if I make a boring podcast, no one will listen to it. Right. I always try to make sure that if I'm going to pick a case, I have a family member who wants to do it and is a full partner in the project. Mm -hmm. I have some police reports so I can verify what happened. It's helpful if I have a law enforcement source as well who can kind of walk me mm -hmm. through the case. And then I also want to have some reason, mm -hmm. some overarching theme or some sort of result of the investigation that I'm trying to find. I'm not just telling an interesting story to entertain people. Right. So in the case of Alexis Patterson, I was trying to do two things. One is I was trying to hold the police accountable for what they did or didn't do and trying to figure out, did they do a good job on the case? Were there missteps? Was there anything else they could have done to get mm -hmm. this case solved? And then I was also trying to draw attention to those racial disparities, both in policing and in media coverage when it comes to missing kids of color. When do you know when you're closing up, when, it's, when, when it feels like it's enough, when it's time to stop the story? I generally want to give a story as long as it takes. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you do have to stop. There's always room for follow-up stories. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing about unsolved cases or when you're you know, making a podcast about unsolved cases, the hardest part is that there's no ending, mm -hmm. right? They haven't solved the case. The kidnapper murderer isn't in prison or going to trial or whatever. So there really is no ending. Mm -hmm. I guess when I'm working on a long-term project, I'm always looking for that natural ending. Mm -hmm. What is the ending going to be of my narrative arc? So, yeah. for example, season one of Unsolved was about a 14-year-old boy named John Zara who walked out of Franklin High School at lunch one day and disappeared, and they later found his body in the woods. 
And for that season, I had a really close relationship with both the lead detective and with John's brother, Mark. And that that story was supposed to end when the detective retired. He was getting ready to retire. And so then he retired. I'm putting it together. And then he decides to go back as a consultant and work the case for free. Mm. So that became the ending rather than him retiring, right. rather than him retiring, which I thought was a better ending. <laughs> but you can't force it, really. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel hope when you start it or do you kind of, you know, like, because I feel like that's a natural human instinct or do you have to train yourself to like dis- disconnect from it? I always feel hope. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have hope, I wouldn't do investigative journalism. My my goal is always to make positive change happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always happen in the way that I want it to happen. Four seasons now, I have not solved one yet, which is unfortunate. Season three, I thought really I was about to, but it didn't quite work out. So in the alternative, I want to raise awareness. And then I also want the work that the subjects do with me to be part of their healing process. Mm. And that's sometimes the most you can hope for. But if I can't achieve at least that, I feel like I've failed. How does your work as an investigative journalist covering mortality and um, and death affect your own perspective on both life and death? Early in my reporting career, I did a project about death myself. And I spent a lot of time with three people who were facing death in different ways. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to learn from them and what I wanted my readers to learn from them is what can the dying teach us mm-hmm. about life? And I think that dying and death can always teach us something about life. Mm-hmm. It, it really helps you figure out what's important. It teaches you about resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the very first homicides I covered was a case where these two, two teenagers in Michigan decided to rob a gas station convenience store. One guy waited in the car. The other guy went in to do the robbery and he ended up shooting three people. One of them died And two others were injured, one not very much, and the other one was shot in the head, and it's amazing that she didn't die. Mm. And then the owner of the store's daughter was there, and she was actually hiding underneath the checkout counter when this all happened. And But not only did I interview the people who had been affected by that and the loved ones of of those people, but I spent many months with that 18-year-old clerk who had been shot in the head, you know, going through her recovery with her. She ended up recovering almost completely, got married, a very unexpected Mm -hmm. conclusion for her. And then the mother of that little girl who was hiding under the counter, I spent a lot of time with them and, you know, how does going through that trauma affect a family and how does a mother help a child through that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I did is I interviewed one of the perpetrators, the the one who had waited in the car, 
who said he did not know his friend was going to actually use the gun. He mm-hmm. thought he was just going to wave it around and intimidation. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that especially now that I have my own kids, that gave me a lot of perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that what I began to learn from that story and what I continue to learn as I go through my career is just to try to do two things. One is keep that perspective, right? Even when something horrible happens, what what can people learn from it? How can they grow mm. from it? Thank you for answering that and being incredibly candid with me. Because you face death so regularly, do you feel like that you're more or less fearful of your own mortality? And if so, how do you manage that fear or acceptance? Only recently, when I turned 50, did I become suddenly fearful mm. of dying. <laughs> it's very strange because I was I was never, I never really thought I mean, I thought about it, and I'm exposed to it quite a bit, but it's just easier to have those blinders on, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier to say, like, oh, I'm writing about these other people that death is happening to. And you kind of put that wall up to protect yourself and to protect your psyche from Mm -hmm. the things that you're writing about. So, But recently, I'm not sure why— but recently I have started thinking a lot more about it and it's not gripping fear. It's more like my kids are teenagers. What would they do without me? Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, my husband needs me and my parents need me. And <laughs> so it's more about worrying about what will happen to those other people in my life if I'm not here to help them and be there for them. It's less about my ego and like me not existing Mm. anymore although that's a very weird thing to think about so I still try not to think about it that much um again I just think the this is I'm going into almost another cliche now but the older I get the more that I realize how important it is to just live in the moment Mm -hmm. and you know I've started telling my platonic friends that I love them every time I talk to them. (laughs) Because just if something were to happen to one of us, I want them to know that. Mm -hmm. So it's it's strange. It's still uncomfortable for me to think about, even though I've spent so many years learning about it and hearing about it and covering it. Have you found any coping strategies or self-care practices that you found that were helpful in dealing with these emotional challenges in your profession? Definitely, I think you have to. Or else you're not going to make it. You know, so many people burn out of journalism and people who are covering cops and courts and doing investigative reporting on criminal justice are some of the first ones to burn out Mm -hmm. because it's just heavy stuff all the time. And so I think the number one uh, great thing that I did for my coping skills is um, I did a fellowship many years ago through the DART Center which is at Columbia University, and it's called the Dart Center on Journalism and Trauma. And what they teach you about is not only how to interview people without re-traumatizing them, like we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. but also that self-care piece, how to make sure that you do not become traumatized by the stories you're telling. And 
one of the best things that came out of that is they had a reunion about 12 or 13 years ago of all the fellows since 2000. And there I met this fabulous man who also covered trauma a lot and married him. (laughs) So uh, we talk all the time about what we're covering and how it's affecting us. So I think having a trusted person who you can talk to um, about your feelings and just about what happened that day and how stressful it was, what someone said. Um, Also, I had mentioned I have the world's best therapist, which is really (laughs) important. I think the other important thing when you're encountering death and trauma, you know, as part of your job is to just be patient and forgiving of yourself mm-hmm. because you are going to make mistakes. And I, I have made mistakes in my reporting where I thought I had done everything right and still the person is angry and, you know, is suffering mm-hmm. and is worse off after I talked to them than they were before. And when that happens, you have to just say, you know, I, I did my best. I tried my best. Trauma is unpredictable, Mm -hmm. and this probably isn't all about me, and you have to just kind of accept that and forgive yourself and move on. Join us next Tuesday for a compelling conversation on the topic of death. During this episode, we'll delve into an intimate interview with a remarkable woman who endured the loss of both her parents at different stages of her life all before turning 28. Don't miss this insightful conversation. Hi, I'm Kim Shine, production manager at Radio Milwaukee. Thank you to our host, Salam Fatayer, Tariq Moody, our executive producer, and Brett Kraskowski, who is our web editor. Thank you to our marketing team led by Sarah Lahr, our graphics and wonderful logo made by Aaron Bagata. Mallory Wallace is our community engagement and membership manager, and Dan Reiner and Darren Brewer handle our social media. A big thank you to City Loving members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible. Tune in next Tuesday for our next episode.